Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. Joining me today is Kent Lastman. He is president and CEO at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, overseeing strategy for the free market organization, including management of a team of policy, communications, and fundraising staff. Prior to that, spent eight years as vice president at a public affairs firm in Washington, D.C., also previous roles at FreedomWorks, Citizens for a Sound Economy, and Progress and Freedom Foundation. Kent, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a treat. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So as I begin all, just about all of these interviews, I ask first about the Competitive Enterprise Institute. What is the mission? Why does the organization exist? Uh, well, we're here to take down, to remove, and if, if applicable, reform burdensome regulations so that people can live in a freer, healthier, a safer, a more prosperous nation where the rule of law is respected. And that regulatory focus is really at the heart of what we do. A lot of what CEI does is examine how policy affects real people in, uh, in the real world. How do you turn that question into the, the focus and, and sort of the target of your work? Oh, that's a, a, great, a great question because so much of what happens in our capitals, and especially in Washington, it's, uh, it's behind the scenes. It's this Byzantine uh, regulatory state. The administrative law processes are not well understood. And what we try to do is bring... Uh, evidence, empirical analysis, uh, concrete examples of how businesses or industries are affected, capital markets and risk in our economy, and bring them and put them in front of those regulators so that they have to confront the real world implications. They cannot, uh, absent our work and, and a handful of allies, regulators are want to just write in the abstract, you know, get stuck in their comfortable agencies, don't take input, and then, uh, unfortunately, are immune to most forms of political accountability. So CEI takes this research certainly to the people to show, but also to lawmakers, politicians, those in elected offices. How often are those elected officials, be it House, Senate, or even state uh, representatives, truly surprised by the data by the effects of those policy proposals or policies that have been enacted? You know, what I have come to appreciate is, uh, especially our federal lawmakers, um, it doesn't matter much from what region of the country they're from, large districts, small districts, urban or rural. Uh, it certainly doesn't matter by party. They know, they understand, because they hear from constituents and, con and organizations in their hometowns that what's happening in the regulatory world is unhelpful, that it's removed from the reality, the day-to-day -day life. What is really more surprising and uh, an area of focus, something that we have to wrestle with and, and be very smart about, is they don't see a political path to reform. So someone will come to me and say, you know, I took five meetings yesterday. A lawmaker will say, I took five meetings yesterday uh, I'm a Republican, and these were all leaders of social service organizations. You know, typically, these people are probably Democrats. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know how to navigate to help them because they can't get through the bureaucracy to deliver the services that they, they deliver in the private sector, in the private sphere of life, through their charities, through their nonprofits, because of, and then fill in the blank, some three-letter acronym agency here in Washington, the Department of Education, the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, the Department of Agriculture, wh whatever it might be. Um, politicians, they know of the problem. What they're lacking is a will to see through to solutions and that, sort of that political solution. And that's, um, we, we try to help with both. You have to give them the information, teach them how these agencies actually operate, what the rules actually say. Uh, there's thousands and thousands of pages of rules that come out every year. Mm -hmm. Some, you know, on average, about 3,500 new federal regulations have the force of law every year. That's on top of last year and the year before. And that compares to only uh, a couple hundred laws. Uh, last year, the, the ratio was 23 to 1. Hmm. 23 new federal regulations with the force of law compared to, you know, things that go through both houses of Congress and are signed by the president. So these lawmakers, they understand that they're behind the eight ball on what the rules say, how they operate, hmm. how they negatively affect their constituents. But they are uh, searching and seeking genuine solutions. How do we improve the rule? How do we get the agency to behave differently? And then that political, that political angle, because uh, that dominates so much of the discussion in, in our capitals these days. Ken Lastman with us, president and CEO at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, on the question at hand, a significant ruling opinion handed down recently by the Supreme Court in West Virginia v. EPA, in which the majority said that these uh, unelected rulemakers at agencies were asserting highly consequential power beyond what Congress could reasonably be understood to have granted. This is a big deal. Is it in some ways a culmination of some of the work that you've been doing at CEI? Uh, absolutely. Uh, this is the latest in a long line of cases on a set of issues that CEI has been involved in. This particular case, in essence, it has clarified very loudly, the court said, look, we understand that there's some ambiguity in the law. The Clean Air Act and other fundamental environmental laws of this country, they really haven't been adjusted for about 50 years. But you can't make up out of whole cloth regulatory schemes that affect fundamental operations of our economy, of our society, of political consequence, you need to get instruction from Congress. And by the way, uh, the folks across the lawn up on Capitol Hill, if you're in Congress and you don't like the fact that we're striking down these regulations, you need to revise those laws. That is your job because as the Constitution says, all legislative power rests with the Congress. So the, the EPA has been wrangling these questions under the Clean Air Act at least since 2000. So it's a long line of cases and we've been involved, I'll just briefly mention, uh, we've been involved as litigants in some of these cases. We've been involved as an amicus mm -hmm. in some of these cases. We've been involved uh, behind the scenes, simply coordinating with the people who are the litigants 
to make sure that they have the most up-to-date uh, science and economic analysis that is the bread and butter of what we produce uh, month in and month out here as a policy organization. It's, it's really rewarding to see this sort of, you know, kind of thunderbolt. But I tell you, it, it comes on the heels of a lot of small, small victories along the way. And, and that's part of the process is that we're always looking for near term policy wins that make it more likely we can change the structure of how these regulations come down, how they're written, what they're written on, the questions about the separation of powers, things of that sort. Let me ask the critique of the ruling, which essentially boils down to, look, we we, we might elect representatives, senators for any number of reasons, but, but not necessarily because they, they know a lot in a specific area. So why should we not want experts in the field, in this case, the environment, to make these sorts of decisions? Uh, there, there's an assumption there that's worth naming. And before, before I, I state the assumption, I think it's really important to be clear. These are very hotly contested issues. People have deeply, deeply held values on different sides of the, the narrow policy question. You know, ought we, ought we regulate this way or that way? What, what are the priorities of climate change or this pollutant or that pollutant? Which one is more dangerous? Mm-hmm. People, I've, I've found time and again, people are approaching this from a point of uh, goodwill. There are people who don't operate that way. And, and you see them pop up from time to time. But I don't think that justices in dissent genuinely believe that uh, the justices, who you know, led by the chief justice, Roberts, that these people want dirty air, right? They're trying to find a way to make our constitutional republic work for highly technical and complex issues. So the assumption is either we have expertise or we have no expertise. Either we have Congress uh, involved or we have nothing at all. And that's, that's really not the solution set that's available to us. We have Congress to pass laws of general applicability and they can give direction, uh, which they, in this case, in this particular case, they have not. Mm -hmm. So they could say, we would like the EPA to regulate the electric grid that reaches Mm -hmm all 350 million households in order to promote cleaner air. They've said nothing of the sort. To reach into the, the livelihood, the businesses, the homes, the schools, the hospitals, every single, every single thing that touches the electric grid and say, we're going to regulate you without instruction from your duly elected representatives, it's just a step too far. And once they've been given that instruction, certainly everyone wants expertise brought to bear. Now, I think it's really important, and we argue time and again, that expertise needs to consider all of the trade-offs. So it's all of the upsides as well as all the downsides. And um, more and more, the regulatory process has become a, a tool for government agencies to advocate on behalf of their own power. Hmm. And to do that, they advocate for all the upsides of a regulation and they ignore the downsides. And uh, often that puts us in the, in the position of saying, we may quibble, 
we may have mild disagreements about the you know the quantity or the qualitative assessment of these upsides but as a rule of reason in order to approach this question to the satisfaction of the law you also have to consider the downsides and you also have to consider the alternative means of regulating that is where we come in kind of way down in the weeds of these regulatory processes but uh really i think on fundamental questions of governance Ken Lastman with us, President and CEO of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. If we stay on the energy subject for, for a moment, energy is integral to society. We, we can't function without it, and we see these days the consequences of rising energy prices in just about every sector. Should should public public good, public accessibility be the only concern when it comes to something as important as energy? Does that mean less market-based fluctuation on prices? Should it mean few decisions made with, with perhaps profit in mind in the, in the energy sector? Well, I'd, I'd start uh, from the proposition that everyone across the board, regardless of your starting point, whether you start off with wealth or without, whether you start out with a job or without, whether you start out with an education or without, everyone is better off with ready access to affordable and reliable energy. So you and I are starting from the same point. This is essential, or sometimes it's called the master resource. Mm -hmm. In order to get the other things, health, safety, security, transportation, manufacturing of goods that we, we desire, to get those other things, you need the first input, which is energy. So if we start from the proposition that everyone Ought to, we ought to design policy to promote reliable and affordable energy. I question if we then need to jump to the proposition that the best way to do that is to provide it through government control of prices or government control of production quantities. What we see through time across markets, uh, important issue, uh, important industries like energy, but also uh, silly things like little gadgets that you pick up uh, at the convenience store just to entertain yourself. These things are delivered more reliably, more efficiently, and with faster rates of innovation when we rely on the market, not when we rely on central planners to tell us how much or where to deliver certain types of goods. So I'd, I'd say it's too important to turn over to government planners. And the essential thing is to have the rules of the road in place, and then allow people to develop cleaner, smarter, more effective means of getting that reliable energy distributed. On the subject of, of labor, Kent, a uh, case out of Illinois where you were, were born and bred and I was born and bred, this Janus case in front of the Supreme Court from a couple of years ago, 2018, dealing with, uh, with forced union dues. I know CEI filed an amicus brief in this case, which was decided back in 2018. Why was this such an important case when it comes to, to liberty and freedom for Americans? Well, there's a there's a fundamental fundamental question about how you understand uh, individuals that this case speaks to. Uh, Mr. Mr. Janus, we believe uh, he needed the proposition vindicated that he had a right, a fundamental right to his the fruits of his own labors. And I don't have uh, a great brief against 
unions or unionization. Um, I grew up in my father worked in a factory, you know, union guys all over the place. Mm -hmm. The farmer labor party in Minnesota is not far removed from the sort of environment that I was very familiar with. My my concern is with coercive means to force him to be part of that union. So they were taking dues without asking. And then when he raised his hand and said, you know what, I don't want to be part of this group. Uh, they were not allowing him to leave. And so that ability to choose how to associate what to do with your, in this case, your money, the, the, the product of working and, and then subsequently the ability to exit and say, you know what, I don't want to be a part of this. Those are all fundamental freedoms and they're all, uh, spoken to in one form or another in the first amendment. The fact that what was implicated here were teachers unions, uh, is kind of accidental, Mm -hmm. you know, it's on the side. Uh, and it made for a more colorful case because teachers unions have a very strong pull on our kind of emotional sense. These are people that are charged with caring for children, a very important and vulnerable community because they can't care for themselves. So there was, there was a lot at stake there kind of symbolically, but it all came back to this fundamental question about what ought people expect of themselves in a free society. And I think they ought to expect the freedom to associate and disassociate with people that they don't want to be with. And they, as John Locke argued some 400, 350 years ago, uh, fundamental right to the fruits of their labor. And this, this principle has been vindicated over and over again in the American context. It's been part of our founding. It was part of the credo that brought us uh, through a very difficult civil war. It's central to the civil rights movement in the uh, mid-20th century, and it's something worth defending and promoting today. The argument continues in Washington, though, about right-to-work laws, which are now in, I believe, 27 states across the country. President Biden has talked about this. There is actually legislation called the PRO Act, and part of the PRO Act would invalidate right-to-work laws in every state across the country that has one. That's 27 states. Uh, is CEI engaged in, in this particular fight and argument? Is there evidence in those states that right to work has been a benefit to Americans? There's there's very clear uh, evidence uh, across these states. And, and there, it's evidence, uh, as, as my social scientist friends like to point out, uh, we have very clear time series. So across time, you know, states that have had right to work longer uh, do better. Uh, it's not just in a single moment. So right-to-work states allow people to to choose whether or not to work in a union environment, uh, even when a union is present. You might have learned of this long ago as a a school child, as open and closed shop laws. Mm -hmm. To revoke right-to-work is to walk us backward, and it's to walk us toward protection of an institution or set of institutions that right now use the protection of the law, these coercive means, they get special prerogatives under the labor laws uh, to operate and enrich themselves. And and here I'm talking about uh, the unions themselves. So unions under laws passed in the 1930s get these special privileges and it um, 
it creates a vicious cycle where ultimately they end up looking out for the union and not for the members. As far as the PRO Act, this is something that we've been working on through the, the mechanism of writing analysis as the, the bill kind of bobs and weaves through the legislative process. It's um, something we've worked on with lawmaker education. Mm -hmm. at, the, at the moment, I would say it is a, a very big threat. I mean, the way that bill is drafted, it's a wish list of kind of every extreme idea that's cropped up in the last 30 years in, in the labor and employment law area. However, I don't think it's an urgent problem in the sense that I don't think anything will happen in 2022. So uh, it's definitely something we've been paying attention to and working on educating lawmakers so that they don't take a uh, kind of a blind vote mm -hmm. to know what they're up to when they when they look at that legislation. But I don't see any uh, immediate motion on that. Ket Lastman is with us, president and CEO at the Competitive Enterprise Institute here on the Future of Freedom podcast. A common theme across the work of CEI is, of course, liberty. You co-wrote a piece recently on how liberty is being pinched, not from the left, but perhaps from the right on some issues, including trade and tech. And that's where I want to spend a few minutes here on tech when it comes to, to Google, when it comes to Facebook, the big tech companies and the calls by some on the right to, to, to use antitrust laws against these companies. Where are they getting it wrong? Well, I don't, uh, I don't argue uh, some of the fundamental complaints, right? There's very real and genuine grievances about how uh, different ideas and people and organizations are treated by some of these large platforms, these large companies, social media companies, other online companies where you would get online services. Um, where I part paths is taking the step of saying, and you know what, probably the best thing to do is to create a law that empowers regulators at the Federal Trade Commission or elsewhere to take a look at this and punish them. Uh, and, I, and I part on s for several different reasons. Uh, one reason is just practical. I know these agencies <laughs> and there's nothing about these agencies that suggests that they care one whit about the problems of conservatives, religious minded people, uh, people who come from minority, they carry minority views or minority backgrounds. These are agencies that are captured by the romantic notion that we can professionalize and make scientific the management of all life. And they can do it from afar. They can do it from a distant capital. And that's just not how things work in the real world. That's not how you would govern a, a country, a great country that spans a continent and our largest ocean. So I part paths on some of the just fundamental questions of how would you do this? Because I think it would boomerang very poorly for uh, these advocates. And then secondly, there's a glossing over, again, to walk back to some of these fundamental questions, fundamental questions of uh, what does it mean to be a citizen in a, in a free country, to have control over your own life and the private sphere of your life? Many of these questions implicate 
uh, many of these policy proposals, excuse me, implicate fundamental questions about uh, what does it mean to be free? Mm-hmm. And I think the future of freedom is very bright. There's a lot going for us right now. The public institutions that we rely on as a, a bulwark, they've taken a beating. But the private sphere, where much of the defense uh, will come from, it, it's it's going very well. You know, so we see market alternatives pop up to uh, some of these social media platforms. So I'm I'm much more confident in liberty than some of my my friends and allies who say, you know what, let's just turn to the regulators and they'll fix it for us. If we agree that there is a problem and perhaps we can find a solution, a CEI scholar Ian Murray has an idea, uh, which would be the disintermediation of some of these social media companies, these big tech companies. What would that entail? Why might that be a better alternative to the heavy hand of government? Much of what he's talking about there is making it easier, what an economist would call switching costs, lowering the switching costs. So making it easier for people to get either engaged. Let's take um, let's take uh, Facebook and uh, Google Circles as two examples. Um, maybe much of much of our audience does not remember Google Circles, and there's a good reason for that. Uh, it was not a very effective or attractive product. And so it was retired. But if you're on Facebook and you have a bunch of uh, photos there and history and lots of friends, uh, you might think it's very difficult to go to some other platform. Um, the disintermediation that Ian calls for is to lower those those transfer costs, to make it easier for people to take their energies and their investment of time you know, maybe cataloging their photos. Uh, that's an investment of time. And switch it elsewhere, whether it's a new entrant, uh, like Parler, uh, that was was very hot on the scene a year and a half ago, a year ago, or if it's longer-term products, but just products that aren't as flashy. I use a combination of things, for example. I use OneDrive with my Apple products, and I use uh, live memories with my Microsoft products to complement my social media footprint, which is, you know, the photos and things that I share on Facebook or Instagram or whatnot. And that disintermediation is simply a way of saying, uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And certainly, let's not pass laws that make it more difficult to move from one basket to another, the various eggs that we create and collect. Ken Lastman with us, CEO and president at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. I want to spend a few minutes here at the end of our conversation looking toward the future of freedom. What what do you see as the role for someone involved in the free market, someone, someone who is a capitalist? What's their role in defending that philosophy? You guys at CEI do some of the work, the legwork in terms of the research and putting these public policy proposals into, into real-life consequences for Americans. What's the role of those of us who are involved in the capitalist system in defending that philosophy? Well, I think the, um, the most basic step that we need to see more of, and we need to see it everywhere, and anyone can do it, is uh, it's not something found in universities or think tanks like where I work. It's not found in, in government documents. Uh, and it's certainly not found very often, 
in political rhetoric, but it's, it's simply the conversations with friends and neighbors and family members that uh, are clear and unashamed of common sense ideas. And, and what I mean, mean by that is uh, you can have the biggest rallies in the world with all the clever signs about capitalism or uh, Davos man or this, that, or the other uh, Supreme Court ruling or election result or, or whatnot. The real work of a civil society that is rooted in these beliefs about entrepreneurship and taking risks and uh, being civil to one another in a pluralistic way, even when we disagree, we know that there's other, other places people can take those ideas and uh, they don't have to force them on me. That real work happens when people say things uh, without shame or embarrassment, uh, like the following. Well, you know, uh, I had a good experience with my dry cleaner today and I said, thank you. And he said, thank you to me. That's the essence of capitalism. Mm -hmm. It's that double thank you, providing value for someone else, creating these win-wins. It doesn't have to be shouting someone down about the latest uh, Trans-Pacific uh, trade agreement. Uh, other people will do that shouting down and you can probably find them on cable television. But the real work is engendering widespread appreciation for these fundamentals, which is to say, you can do your life. I won't get in the way. And a along the way, I'll create something of value and find a market for it. And likewise, that's what we expect of, of you or of my neighbor or of the person in the other pew or down, down the street. Um, I, I really think just common sense language about this stuff is what matters. It's not found in an economics textbook. I know CEI has a new podcast scheduled for later on this year to debut called Free Economy. How are you finding new, uh, different ways to talk to Americans about these, these issues? Uh, well, one thing I love to do, uh, and I try to do it whenever I'm on the road, uh, I try, I, I'm called on to travel a good deal for this, this role. I like to talk to people who are in business. Uh, and so I ask them, you know, what, what sort of, if we're talking about employment law and employment benefits, uh, like the Supreme Court case you referenced, I ask what, what sort of things do they do for their employees? And if we're talking about uh, supply chain problems, I ask about the headaches that they have and what sort of innovative solutions they've come up with to make sure that they have products on the shelves or the ingredients they need to create uh, whatever it is they create and produce. And that podcast that you referenced, we're putting the final touches on getting it organized so that we can have a nice launch for it this year, is going to incorporate the voices of and the stories of capitalists involved in capitalism. Now, some of them will defend capitalism and others will simply uh, defend it by telling the story of what they do. We have all we, there's a very rich tapestry of uh, innovative solutions that are tailored to the time and place and history of different locales. And those stories are the stories of the free market. Those are the stories of free exchange, of free people. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, 
sharing them and getting them out. Kent Lastman, president and CEO at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. You can find more at CEI.org. Kent, thanks so much for joining us here on the Future of Freedom podcast. Thank you very much, Scott. I've already subscribed. I I look forward to the next episode. And you should, too, for more episodes of Future of Freedom to subscribe or to find other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, go to americastalking.com or search wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, a production of America's Talking Network.